Today on CXO Talk, we're speaking about security and how to manage and lead security in 2023. We're speaking with Kurt John, who is the Chief Security Officer of the Expedia Group, and my esteemed guest co-host is Q Harrison Terry, who is the Head of Growth Marketing for the Mark Cuban Companies. Gentlemen, welcome. Kurt, tell us about Expedia Group and tell us about your role. I am Chief Security Officer uh, for Expedia Group, which means I'm responsible for uh, physical security, IT security, or cybersecurity, as well as privacy. And Q Harrison Terry, welcome back. I love when you're the co-host, and I'm just thrilled to welcome you back. So tell us about what you do and the Mark Cuban companies. I'm the head of growth marketing at Mark Cuban Companies, as you've already stated. Um, I'm happy to be back on CXO Talk and really looking forward to the upcoming conversation with Kurt. I'm excited for this convo because we have to talk about security, right, Mike? Kurt, what do you see as the security landscape right now with all of all of that complexity? One of the things that I think a lot of companies are struggling with and what the threat landscape looks like, it's it's the scale. And I like the word you just use, complexity, just the size scale. And with that comes the complexity of environments. There's cloud, there's edge computing, there's artificial intelligence, there's automation, there's orchestration. There's And, and what's funny about it is that not only are we transforming our business models and our ability to drive impact in the market, but also the bad guys are as well. They have the same types of structures, the same joint ventures, the same type of, you know, collaborations that, that they're doing to try to drive their side um, and make money for themselves. And now we are trying to not only implement um, new, new business models to drive more impact in the market, but we also have to then defend against adversaries who are doing something similar. So I would say the biggest challenge um, is that size and scale and complexity. But having said that, there are probably a couple of things you can organize yourselves around um, um, when it comes to actual technical threats. And there, um, it's a lot to do with your endpoint devices, the computers we're all using. It has to do with cloud because we're all using it. Um, for, for a subset of the population of companies, it has to do with edge computing as well. Uh, and then finally, artificial intelligence, ensuring that um, when we build those data models and we try to scale them, things can go bad really quickly. So both from a security perspective, as well as from an ethics perspective, um, paying attention to artificial intelligence is really important. Kurt, when you're at Expedia, like there's tons of people in the world that are out there and they, they do like the chief security officer role, but at a travel company, what does that, what does that entail? It's about our travelers, right? Because that's fundamentally, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to connect uh, our travelers with new experiences around the globe. And in order to do that, we need to serve them up with new capabilities, new ways for them to engage and plan their trip. Um, and, and so we organize ourselves around our travelers, partners, and of course, our employees. And so a lot of the the, the, the decisions we make and the, and the questions we ask ourselves and the answers we, we, kind of, we tend to give ourselves is around travelers, partners, and employees. Now, fun fact about Expedia, and a lot of people didn't, don't know this, um, there's the Expedia.com, but um, Expedia Group is, is also owns a lot of other brands as well. And it was interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine and I was saying, hey, look, I'm going to go work with Expedia now. And they were like, oh, wow, Expedia. You know, Expedia is pretty good. But you know who's even better? 
orbits.com, you should probably look into that. And I said, oh, okay, I, I think I will. But at that time, obviously I knew. But you know, orbits.com, travelocity.com, hotels.com, verbal, um, the list car rentals.com, the list goes on. So fun fact is we 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 drive value in the market through a lot of different brands. How do you think about security across this very broad landscape of different companies, different well-known brands. The necessity to share information, because it, we've gotten to the point now where um, you're unable to accomplish whatever it is you need to do on your own, right? Unless you're building a very specific widget, hardware widget at that, that other people are consuming. And even then you need someone to provide steel or some other type of raw material. Um, you need an ecosystem of partners uh, in order to be successful. And so fundamentally, I look at it in two ways. The first is... Um, how do you work with your partners to drive security consistently throughout your entire ecosystem? And so that means that it obviously everyone doesn't need to meet this incredibly high bar, but what's like the 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 threshold of which you want to collaborate with your partners to really implement security across your entire value chain so that everyone is strong and because you know, of course, the weakest link analogy. That's that's the one side. On the other side, for me, it's the threat intel and the ability to share data, right? Because then some folks within your ecosystem might be experiencing certain attacks. And then the question then becomes, how well can you all share information together so that you can insulate yourself or try to pivot to prevent such an attack? And I found incredible uplift and value in both partnering with your, your, with your ecosystem as well as sharing information with your ecosystem. I think that's really the future. Um, even even um, the, the you know the federal government, the U.S. government uh, from CISA, um, as well as the, the Office of Director of National um, um, of, of Cybersecurity, says the same thing. Um, in other words, to 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 beat all of us, you probably need to beat one of us. But then the flip side of that is to beat you know to to beat one of us, you have to beat all of us. Very convoluted, but essentially what that means is if we all cooperate and share information and, and just ensure that there's a consistency of controls throughout our ecosystems, I think um, the U.S. economy broadly, as well as our own individual companies would benefit quite a bit. How does Expedia think about like internally that decision support system that you're describing? Because it's like, you know, to work across just the organization, uh, everybody has their their directives and and goals, but in order to reach that alignment, you really do need to be able to frame or lean into some type of support network and, and more so specifically around decisions. Because I imagine when you're dealing with security threats and, and, and things of that nature, you're, you don't have a lot of time. This is not something where, Hey, let's come back to it next week or next month or next quarter. This is not specific to Expedia. This is actually could be applied to any company and it has been applied to the companies I've been with before. Um, and, and anyone can adopt this. Um, fundamentally, you're looking at, at two things. I think oftentimes people don't take enough time to actually build out that structure that you just described. It's very much ad hoc and you want to move from ad hoc to optimized as quickly as you can. And what that means is like consistency of processes. So A, right? What does that your governance structure look like? B, how do you evaluate risk, right? Within that organization? And you need a, a repeatable way to do that. C, do you know your risk appetite? This is very interesting. 
I've been at companies before, and this is not expedient, but many, many years ago, I was a consultant and I've seen companies where they think they have a very conservative risk appetite. But when you look at actually the way that they're making decisions and the type of the, the things they're going after, um, it's very much contradictory. They have a very aggressive risk appetite. And I think that emerges because people aren't, or organizations aren't intentional about defining what your risk appetite is. Is it conservative, aggressive, or somewhere in between? Um, what do you sort of rally around? What are you more comfortable with the risk on versus not? So, so that goes back to your risk appetite. And then um, finally, you likely need within your structure a way to make decisions really quickly, like you alluded to. And that means that you likely need to assign certain decisions to certain risk thresholds. Um, so for low, medium, high, so obviously a higher critical risk might go to the CEO, but if there's, there's something of a low risk that might be made with at the director level or below, right? So really it's, I think what that comes down to is more intentionality overall around your risk program. And I think not enough companies, um, treat it that way. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter, hit the subscribe button at the top of our website. We have a really interesting question from Arsalan Khan on Twitter. Arsalan always asks these great questions. And he says, when technology is everywhere and with everyone, what do you find define as the boundaries of your ecosystem? Definitely today, the boundary of your ecosystem not only has it moved backwards from sort of like your your corporate network but it's become incredibly more porous as well so a lot of a lot of holes in it and so the way i think of it is that you you don't define that boundary which is and within the, the security community, you're going to find some people might roll their eyes at this, but zero trust, right? For the, Bear with me for the time being. Um, it's been thrown around quite a bit in the media and companies are kind of like, we're the zero trust mecca. Um, but uh, zero trust, still the tenets of it remains true. So in other words, um, how do you create an ecosystem within your environment that allows the, the appropriate access of your partners and 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 your your employees, wherever they may be, in a way that doesn't require you to give carte blanche access to everything? So my fundamental tenet on this topic is I have no boundary. Um, and even if I did, it would be incredibly porous. So how do I better manage access at the software level? And, and zero trust is a big uh, a big aspect of that. What concerns have you seen uh, on the privacy side due to that? The biggest concern with this new setup is data sprawl. And that comes from three reasons. A, the velocity that comes with the velocity and scalability that comes with cloud, right? So you can swipe a credit card and then you're just off to the races, right? You have a dev environment, you have a pipeline, you can build something, you get a minimal viable product, you're putting data in there. Then someone's like, oh, that's interesting data. Let me make a copy of it. And just it's it's very hard to get started. And then sorry, it's very easy to get started and very hard to contain. So data sprawl is one. Um, the second has to be um, 
in my opinion, the ever-evolving privacy landscape. GDPR did a really good job of, of landing this very specific list of things that people need to do. But for example, in the US, you know, different states are still thinking through how to handle privacy differently. Uh, and that means, you know, if you're in the US or you're doing business in the US, then you need to potentially be paying attention to 50 um, different privacy regulations. Luckily, in the for the most part, there's 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 sort of like a common thread throughout them, but you can't uh deny that the complexity of having to do one-offs or nuances based on the on, on a particular state. And I think those are the two biggest things. Um, in the first case, you just need to be really intentional about having a specific, in the first case, meaning data sprawl, very intentional about having a very specific privacy strategy, but it can't be in isolation. There's a lot of convergence between privacy and security. And so you need both an individual privacy strategy, but you also need a joint strategy when it comes to your data and your just your general corporate information protection. Um, in the second case, um, one would hope, and I've seen um, some indications of this, that we're thinking of an updated federal privacy law, which would which would then make um, companies' lives a lot easier. Now, we have another question from Chris Peterson, and he says, to what extent can security organizations be a market differentiator for their company by saying, you know, we offer better security, better privacy to the customers that they serve. One of the things that security typically struggles with generally as an industry is articulating its value, right? Because our value is derived by the lack of incidents or the lack of breaches. And it's very hard to prove a negative. So I've seen more and more, and I, I tend to call these business value metrics. So there's like operational metrics that you need to drive down vulnerabilities. You need to drive down risk. You need to articulate risk clearly and so on. Those are sort of operational or risk metrics. Business value metrics are how those activities deliver value to the business. A good example of that is, let's say, um, for my for my more security savvy folks, um, ISO twenty seven thousand one. For those that don't know, it's a it's a and this ties directly to Chris's question. It is a certification by a standards body that you can obtain as an organization, and it essentially says that you are doing a really good job of when it comes to the governance of security within your organization. That is a to me an, an excellent example of moving from not just driving down risk, which it does, right? Because it means you've put certain things in place to make sure you have a healthy security program, but then it also becomes a business value metric. Why? Because your partners, if they want to sign a deal with you, might ask you, look, security is really important for us. It can derail our operations. How seriously are you taking it? And then you hand them that certification. And it's not the end all be all, but it's a significant step in the right direction. To, to showing that you have differentiated yourself in the market. That's a really easy example. I think more and more, as you move down the tech stack or you get to more technical outcomes of security, um, I think you're going to see those also be start to get reflected in the market uh, as well. So I'm actually pretty excited about this because it solves an age-old problem, which is 
A, the CEO and, and CSOs in years past spoke different languages, one very technical, one very business-centric. Um, but B, whenever the CEO or those or whomever the board might ask, well, how are we doing? And like, and well, we're doing great, no breaches. Well, if no breaches, do you still really need all that money? Right. And so that's a that's a tough, tough conversation. And so now with these business value metrics, it makes it uh, an easier conversation. When you're Building the vision of like an environment where there aren't many incidents, there has to be threat vectors or things that you find prop, uh, like prevalent Correct. and they have different effects on how you set up the, not only your internal org, but even how you communicate the value of the systems you've put in place because you're, those are top of mind to you. So are there specific like computer incidents that we, that you find right now, very, uh, forthcoming or eye catching? I rely a lot on my threat intel team to kind of um, show what the general threat landscape looks like and how that what that means for example for Expedia. The other, to your point, is if there are incidents that my security operations team are mitigating or preventing from going live in the environment and blowing something up, um, then I would also raise those and say, "Hey, look, within the last thirty days, here's the incidents that that we that we uh, prevented." The but, uh, and then I'll say this really quickly. But to get to the crux of your question, is the the way I handle that now is I make an incredibly tight correlation between what my team is focused on and business outcomes. So let's say, for example, a company is focused on building out stronger partnerships with third parties and trying to drive more automation there, then all of a sudden... APIs and you know edge computing is really important to drive that type of business efficiency that my program needs to pivot as well why because that's a business strategy that's critical for success and so my program needs to also pivot with that so in that environment um just given that you're an e-commerce company and there's tons of e-commerce companies out here dealing with this similar issue how do you think about fraud? And is that a part of the the threat vector that you are responsible for? Or is that something where you, you have to work very closely with like an internal business unit? There's some fraud that starts from a security incident. There's some fraud that starts from a misconfiguration, which some might argue is still a, a security incident. There's some that might start from a privacy incident, which again, some might argue is the same, but it, it's a little bit different. Um, and so what it comes down to is a lot of heavy partnership I have found throughout uh, at least three to four functions generally within the industry. Um, and typically you see skill sets across those. So, so the best way to think of it is a value chain. And I think of most processes and outcomes as a value chain. So if as, as, a, as an organization, for anyone that's listening, you want to make sure you handle fraud um, really well, then what what are what's the outcome you're looking for? What steps do you need to make happen? And then focus on driving that process regardless of where they may sit within the organization. Then there's all these opportunities for to optimize and shift things around. But what you want is the type of environment where you can get an outcome, file the find the milestones, and then drive horizontally across the various business units. When you think about the government, right? So the government has this role where they're dealing obviously with some of the, the bad actors at the, the highest level in this space. But you're seeing so many edge use cases just pop up overnight because you're responsible for this fraud thing. What what would a better like what would a better corporate government alliance on the fraud, fraud 
protection specifically look like in your eyes? If you're not familiar with it, ISACs, it's information sharing and analysis centers. And um, there are a bunch of different types. There's like the retail and hospitality. There's the financial. There's like electric. These are all intended to be like sector specific um, and and um, um, or uh, sector specific groups of companies that focus on specific threats and then share information about it. And what's what's interesting about your question is that I would argue, um, and maybe it's more so in the e-commerce slash consumer side of things, but I would argue most businesses um, are subject to fraud, right? Particularly if you have weak controls. So maybe a, a better way that, that comes to mind, and I've never thought about this before, so it's a really good question, is do we need to start thinking about these topic-specific risks that are plaguing, um, that are running horizontally across multiple sectors, and quite frankly, plaguing a lot of companies and sectors? So, so to, 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 so to answer your question is maybe it's a, a some type of information sharing type um, situation for specifically for fraud. And... Wayne Anderson, who's another regular listener that also asks these great questions, he he has two related questions. He says, number one, let me ask you both of these because they're connected. Number one, in a consumer ecosystem where individuals cannot hold a provider accountable contractually, what to you is the biggest board motivator for a security program's incremental investment. So in other words, what's the argument that you make to boards around the value of security? Because us consumers, you know, when providers go down or release our private information, there's just nothing we can do about it. And then he also wants to know, in your mind, how do you group or what are the important metrics that a security team uh, can present to drive board members and business colleague conversations. So I think I think to summarize what he's really talking about is how do we get boards and senior business leaders, executives to take this seriously? When it comes to boards, there are two things. The first is you need to find a way to articulate to that board how security is helping to either protect or enable the journey that the business is on. And so to the best extent possible, you always want to to articulate your security outcomes in the context of the business strategy. And typically there's an update on the business strategy during board meetings for you you to come either before or after and to be able to say, well, yes, and here's how the steps we're taking to help safeguard that strategy. That's one. Two, consumers are also getting very savvy. And I think boards and just management in general are beginning to realize that, um, especially with the advent of social media platforms like Twitter, um, you know, things can go south really quickly. And I think having seen that, I think boards are much more sensitive to how companies are perceived. And so I think the biggest driver, which it should be as a foundational item, is compliance, right? Are we doing anything that's going to land all of us in in like the jailhouse or testifying in front of Congress? No? Check. 
uh, who are we as a company and are we taking the steps necessary that our consumers will continue to perceive us as advocates of their security and or privacy? We are not, and, and I think a lot of companies need to ask themselves this question, then who are we as, I use the term individual because I, th- I see companies as having unique cultures and personalities and so on. Um, so bear with me as I use the term individual loosely. Are what type of individual are you when it comes to security and privacy, and how willing are we far to go? Willing are we willing to? How far are we willing to go? The third is, um, do we even need to be best in class, or are we are we the type of company that's good at industry standard? Is it best in class? Is it a little bit below? That's a continuous risk conversation that a company needs to have with itself. I don't subscribe to every company needs to be best in class at all times. There's a lot of variables that you need to consider. And when it comes to your colleagues, it's the same thing, um, just taken down a level. So along with, so the overarching company strategy in terms of, of how security is protecting that, you then need to have those exact same conversations with your counterparts or other business leaders. Um, here's how we're driving security within your organization. It's very topic specific. When it comes to security, you cannot make an even spread except for things like your annual security program. You want to create a specific type of you know, outcome, conversation, whatever you want to call it with specific business leaders. And then the final thing I would say is you need to be very maniacal about feedback. You have an idea of what it is you want to accomplish. You're going to try your darndest to connect with the board and other business leaders in a way that you think makes sense. You're going to really push for outcomes that make them successful, but you're not always going to get it right. And so you want to have a a sort of a closed feedback loop system where you are constantly getting feedback. How did that land? Was it useful? Was it not? And so I'm a big proponent of business value metric. How are we landing? And then getting that feedback to try to, to, if you need to pivot on that business value metric, then you do. I think it's a good answer. There's no, when it comes to the boards, there's no quick and dirty response. There's no magic bullet here, right? There's, it's, it's a matter of convincing the board that they have to make this investment, which is obviously tough because the investment is like insurance. And, you know, it's like, gee, I think we should buy a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of insurance for this risk to get back to what you were saying earlier that may seem really unlikely. Completely agree. One, And then one other thing I'll mention is you have to be an incredibly amazing steward of that money. And what do I mean by that? If you're about to get an investment, you need to do two things. A, you need to be very clear and articulate about what value gets delivered when and set milestones for you and your team so that the money just doesn't end up in the ether. And then at the end of the year, it kind of like, well, look at this. And yeah, but but we give you like 10 times that. Like, is that all we got for the value? And then the other is that you, just because you're getting an influx of money doesn't mean that you need you don't need to be just incredibly uh, uh, practical about cost savings as well. Um, you constantly want to do that. So if there are decisions, that you, tough decisions that you need to make in order to drive more optimization on cost savings, it should not, like you need almost need to treat those separately. So you optimize, you constantly optimize your spend regardless if you're getting an influx of cash or not. We have a question from Arsalan Khan again on Twitter who has, asks really good, excellent, excellent question. He says this. 
he says, GDPR is a good is a good framework, and we know that the U.S. federal government is not is not going to jump quickly onto that level of data privacy. So why don't companies just adopt GDPR themselves as a standard? The biggest caveat that companies have why they wouldn't just do that is because there would be more, mostly global companies. I think you'll find if they're either U.S.-based companies that primarily operate in Europe or they're Europe-based, European-based companies, they'll do that in a heartbeat, right? But if you're looking at more global companies, you're going to find that they may be more hesitant to do so because one of the challenges is their ever-evolving privacy regulations as you work your way east or west, right? If you're in the U.S., and then not to mention the 50 states as well. For example, I know California, just the CPRA, um, Oregon is looking at one. Um, there's one in, in Virginia as well. So um, companies, I think, are hesitant, and what they end up doing is they try to find the common denominator and solve for that until there's a more predictable regulatory environment. So if, I think that's maybe maybe the key takeaway. In the absence of a predictable regulatory environment, companies are going to try to do the sort of like the 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 common denominator uh, in order to avoid wasted funds, right? Because you you optimize for GDPR, and then a state or two or maybe a federal line in the U.S. comes along and, and and sort of tosses it on its head. You know, Mike Tyson has a saying where he says, everyone has a plan until... To get punched you... in the face. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I want to I wanna, I wanna, I wanna start to amplify this conversation a bit, right? As the chief security officer, you know, you can build a security system that's really damn good, but there's no system that's perfect. And when you do have an intrusion or you do have... Uh, something that get, goes further than you would like. What is what 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 goes through your mind? One of the things as a chief security officer you need to be able to do is to figure out how to fail fast and fail gracefully. Because nothing, as you said, as you alluded to, Q is 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 pitch perfect, and something will go wrong. And when it does, you don't want to languish and sort of tumble, right? You need to be able to fail and then recover as quickly as possible. So one of the things that I focus on as well, and this is not, again, not just for Expedia, but just it's something to do well within the industry, is you need to constantly be evaluating your ability to fail quickly and, and recover quickly. And I think that honestly is the biggest difference between companies that handle a breach well and others that don't, because you are like, if a nation state decides to come after you, there's very little you can do to prevent it. What, 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 and, and I was at a CISO conference this week and someone asked the question, do consumers really even care anymore though that breaches happen? And I said, well, okay, we, my response was, and it was, the question wasn't for me, I was an, an audience member, but I kind of spoke up. I said, yes, maybe we are desensitized a bit as consumers, right? Because there are breaches, you know, every day you're reading about something different, but it doesn't mean necessarily that, con that, that consumers don't care. And the trouble that companies get into has shifted from a breach has happened that's expected these days, to how does a company respond to that breach and what is their communication like? And to me, that is also a part of your ability to fail quickly, fail gracefully, and recover. There's one thing that I will say. Like, when I worked in security, one of the things that we 
we got really good at that I think helped us out a ton was the postmortem and the art of the postmortem. And one of the things that we did a little bit differently was we always led with the the implemented fixes. So, you know, oftentimes you have your postmortem and that's like right after the event and you're like saying, what could we do better? What could we do wrong? And we, we, we led with the fixes and the solutions, or even if they were in development, uh, we started there and then we started to divulge into, you know, what were the mistakes and what can we do to, to do better moving forward? What is the postmortem process that your team look like at the at the highest level? I would say it's no different from how it, it should be done, right? So the question then becomes, um, for me, so the fundamental questions I ask is what what just happened and why did it happen? Happen, and even though you might not, um, sorry, not why, but how? How did it happen? And even if you don't necessarily know completely what who what adversary got access to what, typically you can get to the how. Um, fairly quickly. And what you want to start to do there is try to figure out, are there other areas within your environment that replicate this type of either misconfiguration or vulnerability that you need to start looking at really, really quickly? It's always putting what happened in context. Um, and then simultaneously, obviously, you need to work on on um, like what was accessed, because then there might be some reporting requirements. But for me, it's it's all about figuring out the how so that I can like stem any type of breach of subsequent breach that might happen. But then um, after that, I need to get into um, um, sort of fixing mode really quickly uh, and be able to c- communicate clearly to the board and others that might need to get that information. If you could go back in time, let's say you have all the information that you now know today, what would your younger self do when you, I'm talking about you just got this job, you're brand new into the role, like, cause that's, that's, it's the top of the year. I mean, there's a lot of people that just got new titles, titles changed, elevated, uh, and they're, they're, they're sitting in the hot seat and they, they, they haven't gotten punched in the face yet. So what advice would you give to them? There are probably like four or five things. And I hope I can remember them right. Because the thing about getting into a seat like this, it can be really, really overwhelming right there's there's like a gazillion different things happening everyone needs your time it's you know especially as a new c so it's really hard to filter out the signal from the noise and so um the advice i would have is make sure you're incredibly clear about your objectives and key results and always come back to them regardless of how people randomize you that's what you're looking to deliver the second thing is as a in the security field there's probably five things. There's there's awareness and training to try to reduce the likelihood that your user population does something silly. There's endpoint protection, just because that's what you know most people click on stuff and you just want to make sure. And I use the term endpoint loosely, right? That includes servers. There is uh, vulnerability management, right? You want to try to spot and get rid of those vulnerabilities as quickly as possible. And then um, to the extent that you can, um, there's also uh, uh, identity and access management. If you can nail those four, I think you are in a much, much better position than a lot of other organizations, uh, quite frankly. And then you sort of build from there. So figure out what your foundation is, build some OKRs to those, and then that is your North Star. You are working on that religiously and let the noise come and go, and and you just focus on delivering on those. Chris Peterson earlier had asked a follow-on question regarding the ecosystem, and he says... 
How does Expedia, but I'm going to generalize this, how does security and IT, IT deal with partner issues like when Southwest, Southwest Airlines had their disruptions around Christmas? But to generalize, what do you do or what should, a, should, what should one do when the partners have a security meltdown and the data is leaking and you're involved because of that? What should you do? Hopefully you're left of boom, which is sort of the industry term for um, when something happens. And if you are, um, you want to start fostering like relationships with your key partners today, share information, share policies, find out how to get reporting both ways and so on. So that's what you want to do then. The, if, if, if it's right of center and something's already happened, you also want to like truly be a partner, lean in with your resources and see and ask how you can have, how you can help. And that's in both directions, both you as the primary person, maybe there's a third party, but if you're a third party that, and there's a primary, you also want to do that. Cause again, without all of us, the kind of skin in the game, we're not successful. So build strong partnerships, active partnerships. Arsalan wants to know, what about AI and the role of AI in security, maybe even using AI as an advisor to the chief information security officer? It came to my attention that someone's um, forked um, chat GPT and started doing some analysis and some development around that type of capability with security. And it was interesting because they would do something sort of like reverse engineer that malware that just came in and put the indicator of compromise in this system and so on. Basically just told it generally what to do and it was able to do all that. So I, I absolutely think there is a place today and it's going to be even bigger place um, uh, in the future for the way AI is going to help um, abstract a lot of the complexity of security and allow us to focus on outcomes. Now, some people might hear that and think, well, jobs are going away. I disagree. Security is a very complex space. And I think what this does is free up very limited resources to work on more complex and, and interesting business problems. We have a really interesting point from Carrie Sullivan on LinkedIn. And I'm going to ask this one to both of you because this question gets caught between right square in between you both. Okay. She says, great, quote unquote, growth mindset thinking. Security is about human behavior as much as it, as it is about having great technology, getting stuck in the crisis, letting a breach languish is never the right answer. Postmortem and continuous improvement are as much about improving the barriers, but also the people reaction and response and so this is my question to you both. It's this, this growth mindset with security that, as far as I can see, drives, or it's growth mindset within the business that helps create the conditions that drive all the breaches and drive the fact that my personal information is out there on the web. So Q, I blame you, and Kurt, apologies, but I have to also blame you as representative of your sort of separate breeds of growth mindset, growth, growth people and security people. I'm sure you might've seen it, but you know, Gen Z is very much into this. This, this is, we all remember growing up with these. Uh, Kurt, you remember this phone? I do remember that phone. Uh, uh, crazy thing is this is a, this is a BYOD phone that you have to worry about now. 
No, I'm serious. Like flip phones are, are back. The flip side, this is also the same device that you have that you've got to worry about. And you've got to, in, in the bad guys, the bad actors are, they're on both. And this is actually probably more simple. So it's easier to infiltrate a network. And we oftentimes don't even think about it. And so marketers, we ruin everything. We always see the emerging trends and we come in and <laughs> we just, we, we, we don't think about privacy. We don't think about data. I mean, we just use it because we want the look, we want the press. And it oftentimes falls in your lap on the, the security side to, to fix it. But when I think about the people notion, we always, we, this has always been true historically. Like what was old once becomes new. What is new once becomes old. And it's just fascinating to see now in a more connected landscape how those things can even play into uh, a competitive intelligence. They can play into threats and and and, and security uh, risk and vulnerabilities. But it, it, the, the way I'm going to pass this back to you, Kurt, is how do you think about that? Because AI is cool today, but I remember an era where voice was like all the, the rave. And I remember an era where blockchain and big data was all the rave. So there's always a hype trend, but you are responsible for keeping it all within the same vessel and making sure that engine goes forward. The technology might change, but to, to the point of the, the person who asked the question, um, you can swap out the technology, but in essence, what you're looking for from your user community is the exact same thing. First of all, security is job zero. Second, um, you know, are they advocates or champions for security? And if they're not, you need to start more in the awareness training and just engagement level and feedback level to try to drive that culture. But then from my perspective, it also comes down to um, diversity uh, and that growth mindset. Um, the growth mindset speaks for itself. How can I learn, evolve, you know, grow in order to be better and respond better to these types of issues? But then diversity, I'm, I'm talking, um, you know, ethnic, uh, cognitive, you know, you name it, every type of diversity. Because one of the things that are pretty in, that's pretty interesting about security, it's a very creative field. Right. Um, you can like two people can sit down and stare at the same thing. And just because you had a spark of inspiration, you can figure out how to solve this issue where someone else might not. Um, and so, yes, it's technical, but it's also there's a certain level of art to it. And whenever you're in a situation like that, you want the type of team that has very different backgrounds that when they come together, there's greater than the sum of the parts. And so I would say it's a combination of culture, um, which includes that growth mindset, as well as diversity. What is the impact? that you've seen from the application of IT security on the travel industry at large? Like, so thinking before and after, and, and largely because of some of the practices yourself and colleagues and partners have put in place, and, and it has led to, you know, new environments for us all. I would say it's the ability to care deeply about your traveler and the experiences they have. And part of the that experience is not just being able to see, you know, the Grand Canyon or Christ the Redeemer statue or whatever else it might be, it's them having the confidence in sharing information with you um, and trusting you that you could facilitate this experience in a way that helps them be a better, you know, have a better outlook on life after versus before taking that trip. And so I think it's it's driving and trying to continue to build the confidence uh, in with our travelers and our partners. And with that, I'm afraid we're out of time. So a huge thank you to Kurt John and to Q Harris and Terry. Thank you both for doing this today. Thank you for having me. 
Likewise. And a huge thank you to our great audience. You guys are so smart. Thanks so much, everybody, for watching. Before you go, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Hit the subscribe button at the top of our website. Then to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Check out CXOTalk.com, and we will see you again next time. Have a great day, everybody.